Well, hey, happy Sunday morning, Calvary Church. Blessed daylight savings, times or loss, or whatever that ridiculous thing is. I, that is part of the fall. I just am like, <clears throat> Genesis 3, it's like snakes will eat you up, there'll be hornets, and by the way, it'll be daylight savings time. I don't get it, but I'm sure there's some farmer somewhere in some century that's grateful that we still do that. I don't even know what it's for. So hey, thank you guys for being here. Um, this morning, <clears throat> I would love uh, just to begin on behalf of my family and I, uh, if you were here last week, it was just personally and for my family, just an uh, incredibly meaningful time, the way that so many of you, all of you expressed your thanks um, and your appreciation, and um, we are deeply, deeply grateful. We went, home that, uh, we went home that afternoon, and we were just overwhelmed by the countless number of cards and uh, generous gifts of thanks, and we read through every one, uh, many of them with tears in our eyes of appreciation and gratitude. And so uh, we're just grateful for you thanking us, and we're so thankful for you. So on behalf of everybody, thank you guys for what you did. It's a, it's a privilege for us all to be figuring out this thing called church together. And my role is just to be the guy who stands up here with the mic. Um, but man, all of us are in this together, right? We're, we're a group of people that God's called to be a body and to grow as disciples and to impact others. And so it's an honor to be walking that road with you. Special week for us last week and lots of <clears throat> uh, special things coming up. And so here's what I'm going to do. What's the saying about you can teach a man, you can fish or give a man a fish or teach him to fish? What's that thing? Yeah, well, whatever it is, I'm going to teach you to fish. Ready? <clears throat> because in here, there is information about things that are coming up in ministries. There is information about our, Paul, our, our Good Friday service with a time change. There's information about the times of Easter. There's information about ways that you can serve in a meaningful way with certain gifts. There's information about all sorts of stuff, and that's all I'm going to tell you about that. And if you want to know what it is, you can open it up and you can read it, right? So uh, there is important stuff about uh, Good Friday and what that looks like and when that is, and so I would call your attention. Grab one of those if you haven't already and check it out, and we'll continue to keep you informed about what's going on. So I'm going to pray. And then we're going to start and keep jumping into what the Lord has for us in our text this morning. Um, and here's what we're going to do. We're gonna, I think we have another week or so in this, and then we're taking a three-week pause for Easter. We're going to do a two-week uh, kind of pre-Easter series leading up to Easter Sunday. And then we're going to jump back into Revelation. And then in the month of June, we're going to call just another little time out. And we're going to pause from Revelation for about three weeks or so. And uh, just doing that for a variety of reasons in the summer to give June a little pause. And then we'll kick back into Revelation into July. And that'll take us strong into the fall. So that's where we're going, assuming that... Uh, we're still here for that, and the world doesn't end. Uh, so I will pray. I don't think the world's ending if you're visiting, right? Somebody right now is like, this dude's a wacko. Let's get out of here and let's get another cup of coffee on the way out the door. Let me pray, and we'll move into what God has for us. Father, uh, thank you this morning for bringing people who love you together in local churches all around the world. And I pray for our church planter in Southeast Asia, who we have the privilege of supporting, who at great risk to themselves is uh, telling truth about you and perhaps even gathering with other people this morning. I pray for blessing on them. I pray for blessing in other areas where it's illegal to worship you and there are brave Christians who put you ahead of their own safety that are with such joy and sacrifice this morning joining with us and thanking you and honoring you and worshiping you. I pray for all the local gospel-believing churches around here, Father, um, as they're gathering in Fairfield County and Westchester County, that you will work through them. And God, I pray that you'll work in our body in this time together. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for people that are growing in you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for people who are serving. And we're grateful for what you're doing and continue to pray for great wisdom and clarity to steward your work here well in a way that honors you and help us in these moments as we hear your word. Now we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, we are going to start with uh, two photos this morning, two picture times. So we have the privilege of having a lot of different people from all different walks of life worship here and be part of Calvary. Uh, it's an honor to have different students, the different professors from other countries who are coming for different degrees worship with us. And we have some professors from different schools who come and are part of this body. We have one individual that's a professor at Yale uh, in their religious department and she is actually, actually this week, she wasn't here last week because she is traveling and doing some stuff, and she sent me this photo uh, <clears throat> last week uh, of this. This, that's beautiful looking, isn't it? It's so tranquil. This is what is known as the Valley of Megiddo. Megiddo, Megiddo, okay? This is the location, and we'll read about this if you're checking us out for the first time when we're studying the book of Revelation. Uh, this is the location when we get to Revelation 16. Have you, have you ever heard of the Battle of Armageddon? The Battle of Armageddon, where many, many scholars think that this valley, this plain, there's Mount Megiddo somewhere, either that or on the other side, <clears throat> they think that this valley, this plain, is going to be the site of the Battle of Armageddon. And just interestingly, if that's true, last week, somebody who's part of our body was in a place in the world that has significant biblical meaning and import, and so... Uh, looks pretty beautiful now. I don't think I want to be snapping photos of that if our understanding of Revelation 16 is correct. But just want to share that with you. It's just interesting how real life and the Bible intersect in the line. Um, and so we'll talk more about what will happen here when we get to Revelation 16. I want to show you a picture of another valley, okay? And <clears throat> this was not taken this past week, and I apologize, it's blurry. This was taken probably back in um, yeah, 2010, 2011, and this valley is outside of the city of Managua in Nicaragua. I had the opportunity to uh, do some mission stuff in Nicaragua with some amazing people over there, and this <clears throat> is a wooden structure, as you can tell, and this is a very, very uh, deep canyon and valley, and you may not be able to see it because this was like this was like taken on, you know. Now they have like iPhone 79s, right? This, I know they really don't, but this was taken like on an iPhone one, okay? And, uh, so it's a little blurry. You may or may not be able to see these wire kind of things going way, 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 way far away. Well, those are actually zip lines. This is a zip line outside of, uh, outside of Managua in Nicaragua. And when we were on our team, we were driving through the hills and we came across this. Now, um, <clears throat> this was rustic and rural, right? But, and, and this structure's been there, it looked like, for many, many years. And there were some uh, teenagers and young adults on our team who were like, let's go do that. That looks fun. And I thought to myself, huh, we all define fun differently. Because I have an incredible fear of heights. I mean, I'm, I'm not afraid of a lot. Don't you worry about that. But like this right here, this is about as high as I never to get in my life, right? I can't do it. I don't like them. And I'm almost 51 and I don't care. I don't need to be macho anymore. So I ain't getting up on anything high, whatever. Okay. But these young adults and these teens are like, no, 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 let's do it. And so uh, they did it. And this was not like a little you know, Vermont's got zip lines. I think the Discovery Center in Bridgeport, whatever that, that used to have a zip line, right? And those zip lines go like from here to the coffee area, okay? I think this zip line went from like Nicaragua to Brazil. <laughs> it was long and it had been there for many, many years. And these young adults and teens, as did I, when we came across it, right, the, we had to make a decision they had to make a decision of whether they were going to trust it. Was it trustworthy? Would it do what it had promised to do? Would it get them to where they wanted to go safely? Uh, and I had to make a decision about whether I was going to trust it. And these teens decided they would trust it. This guy decided I would not trust it. But at the end of the day, we all ended up fine. And it was, in fact, trustworthy. And here's the reality for you and me this morning. We are not necessarily sitting in the valley of Megiddo thinking about Revelation 16. We are not in Managua, Nicaragua, outside of Managua, 
at a zip line determining whether we trust this. But this morning, every single person in this room, no matter where you are spiritually in your faith, uh, in your faith we all trust things. Every single one of us in this room at different moments in our lives all, has to ma- all have to make a decision of whether we think something will be trustworthy. Will it do for us what it claims it's going to do? Is it going to do it for us in a way that will keep us from getting hurt? Will it get us to where we want it to get us without pain or falling? Can we trust it? And this morning, every single one of us here is trusting something. Every single one of us in the room this morning is trusting something and probably for different things and different reasons are trusting all sorts of different things. Some of us may have people we trust, but then there's others of you this morning because of circumstances in your life, you're trying to determine if there's people who can be trustworthy. Many of us in the room this morning trust Jesus, but there may be some in the room this morning or listening online who are wrestling with the question of, okay, I hear what all these Christians think, but is Christianity really trustworthy? Maybe you think Christianity isn't trustworthy, and maybe you're trusting yourself to be the determiner of your faith. Maybe you think Christianity is trustworthy, but you're still in a moment where you haven't surrendered or released something to God, and you're still trusting yourself as the power, as the authority, as the one who has the ability to figure it all out and make it all happen in a way that you want it to happen. Maybe you genuinely do trust God, and you know that you can't make things work out, and you're in a place of trust, and you believe Him, and you know the book, and you know the story, and you know the verses, but there's been something that's happened in your life recently, and there's been a curveball. There's been a circumstance, and what that's caused you to do is just to feel like, if you were honest, that God's let you down a little bit, because you think, I don't deserve this. Because here's all the things that I've done. Here's the way that I've lived my life. Here's my faith. Here's my belief. And God, I had this expectation that you were going to work to keep these kind of things from happening to me, and God didn't. And you're struggling with trust, but yet feeling left down on different days and in different ways. We all trust things, and we also have to choose what we will trust. On different days and in different ways, all of us trust things, and all of us also have to choose what we will trust. And today we're going to continue from last week, and we're going to keep working through the book of Revelation. And we're going to continue on through Revelation chapter 9, and we're going to make some observations from the text. This is kind of part two of last week, but many of our observations today are going to kind of drill down and focus into this issue and this question, some observations and principles about God and about trusting God. And so I do this every week because I know it might get a little annoying for you and I don't want to do that, but there's some people who are jumping in at different times, and so it's important that we remember where we are in this study. So here's what's going on in the book of Revelation. We're in a series, uh, obviously, I've said it now like 17 times, in Revelation. And Revelation, we're taking this perspective, it's a book that describes events that are yet to come, what's going to happen in the future. And we're at a place where we're thinking about events that will happen in the future that are linked with something called the tribulation, the tribulation. It's this period where God is going to allow some things to happen, and like we've talked about a lot, those things are going to happen to bring punishment on the earth as part of the redemption process, but another theme, another intended outcome of those bad things that are going to happen is God is doing those to try to bring people back to him, to try to cause them to see that what they've trusted in isn't working, and to try to bring them to repent and to turn to him so that they can be protected and shielded from other punishment. If you've been with us, you know that Revelation is filled with all sorts of symbolism that can be challenging to understand and to figure out, and we're in this section of the book that's describing the tribulation, and literarily, it's using trumpets and it's using seals as the way to kind of link with events that are to come. So there's some verses that talk about a seal being opened, another seal being opened, a trumpet being blown, and each of those is linked with an event that will happen, we think, during the tribulation. And that's what we're kind of walking through our way together. And so we're at a place, if you're playing like trumpet or seal bingo. Oh, that could be an interesting 
concept. If you're following along, we've been looking through different trumps. We've, we've started with some seals, and we've looked at seven seals and four trumpets. And Revelation 9, where we are, deals with trumpets number five and six, trumpets number five and six. So I'm going to do what I did last week, and I'm going to read the whole chapter in its entirety, just to kind of remind us of what it says, <clears throat> and then we're going to walk back through it and draw some observations. Here's what it says. If you've got a device, if you've got a Bible, open it up. If you need a Bible, we have some out there and, um, on the table in some different languages. Love for you to have that as a gift from us. And here's what Revelation chapter 9 says. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft of smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads, told not to harm. Verse 5, they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle on their heads, or it looked like crown of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had trumpets, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who have been prepared who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode with them. They were, wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths, for the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor <clears throat> did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Lots of language, lots of symbolic, confusing, uh, odd language. We spent a lot of time last week walking through some of the more complex parts of it. And last week, from our walkthrough of a bunch of things you just heard, here's the three things that we saw. We saw three observations, that God desires all people to know him and to avoid punishment for sin. Second observation we saw last week from the text, that God will protect Christians from the punishments that he allows to happen on the earth. And then third thing that we saw was this, and we had some challenges flowing out of this. For the people who are not in a relationship with God, their reality on earth in the last days will become increasingly and progressively more terrible and hopeless. From all the words out of Revelation 19, we unpacked the symbols, we unpacked some of the metaphors, and we drew some of these observations. And in some other language, with all of these bad things that are being described happening on earth, there's some amazing insights about God. And so we're going to think about those for a little bit this morning. The first insight about God comes from verses 4 and 5, where it's describing these locusts, and we talked about last week what they may or may not be, and it says this about that. They were told, and this is being told by God, <clears throat> they were told uh, not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. These locusts, whatever they are, they're going to cause all sorts of chaos. 
they're going to cause all sorts of damage. They're going to cause all sorts of bad things to happen, and they're associated with evil. And they're going to be able to cause some destruction, but it's really, really interesting because there are some limits on them. We heard in the verse prior to that, that here, right here, they were told not to harm the grass, okay? So <clears throat> locusts, whatever you are symbolically, you, can, you have free reign to do a lot of stuff. There is a lot of bad stuff that's going to happen, but there's some boundaries. Don't harm the grass. Next boundary, right? You can harm the people who don't have the seal of God in their foreheads, but by implication, don't harm the people who do have the seal of God. We've talked about what that is in past weeks and unpacked it. And interestingly, even though you harm those people and cause uh, some destruction and some discomfort to to people who don't know Jesus, you are not to kill them. All sorts of chaos happening associated with whatever this is, but there are three kind of restrictions on it. Hey, don't harm the grass or the trees, don't harm people who believe in Jesus, and don't kill the people who do not believe in Jesus. Man, the wickedness and the harm is going to have a bunch of consequences and a bunch of impact but all of that really bad, bad stuff is still subject to the control of God. All of that bad stuff that's going to happen, God is still in control of, and God is still more powerful than, and God is still restricting and limiting and putting boundaries on. God is still in control even in a moment in the world where it looks like everything is out of control. <clears throat> this is really, really bad stuff. This is really, really powerful, harmful, hard stuff, but none of it is more powerful than God. None of it is more powerful than God. Here's the observation that we draw from that. As we read about this evil and this harm that happens, what we see is this, that God is more powerful than evil. God is still more powerful than that. And that is true. God is more powerful than evil. And there's three other truths and a little fourth one that comes with it, and it's this. Another truth is this, that God's more powerful than evil, and God keeps many harmful things from happening to us and shields us from much evil. There are probably so many things that we have no idea about that God and his sovereignty protects us from. We probably have no idea in the course of our life, in the course of our choices, in the course of our interactions, in the course of everything, the vast amount of bad and harm and hurtful things that God protects us from. God is more powerful than evil, and God keeps many harmful things from happening to us, and he does shield us from much evil. But there's a second truth that goes along with that, and you don't need it on a screen to realize that, because even though truth one is true and truth two is true, here's the third truth, that God doesn't keep every hard or evil or difficult thing from happening to us. God is more powerful than evil. There are a countless number of things that we may never know that God protects us and shields us from. But at the same time, God doesn't keep every evil or hard thing from happening to us. And then the third kind of flowing down this little, whatever this is, chain of thoughts about God is this. <clears throat> Just because God does not keep every evil or hard thing from happening to us does not change the fact that he is more powerful than evil and the hardships that he allows to happen. God is all-powerful. In his power, he keeps so much from happening to us that we'll never know about it, but he doesn't keep everything hard from happening to us. But just because he doesn't keep everything hard from happening to us does not change the fact that he is all-powerful. And it does not change the fact that he's more powerful than anything that he allows to happen and... It doesn't change the fact that he is good. It doesn't change the fact that he is good. The character of God is not impacted by the circumstances of our life. 
and we can't use the circumstances of our life to determine the character of God. The character of God is not changed or impacted by the circumstances of our life, and we can't use the circumstances of our life to determine the character of God. And if I could find it, I would have now brought out for you this little elephant that I told you about this before, that this leadership guy gave to me because he's like, Peter, whenever your staff is having a discussion, there's an elephant in the room, pull this out and throw it against the wall because it's a little gray, squishy elephant. And I thought, "Eh, okay, maybe. But right now there is an elephant in the room. Right? There is an elephant in the room because the question that if we've ever taken two seconds to think about hard times is this question. Peter, okay, I hear you. You kind of sound a little pastor talking to me now because here's the elephant in the room. If God's all-powerful, if he's good, right? if he's loving, if all that is true, and if he can do anything, then why does he allow those hard things to happen? Why doesn't he just stop them? Right? That's the elephant in the room. And there are centuries and centuries of thought and discussion and wrestling through that question. And there are countless books and ideas, and we're not going to be able to fully address that in these few minutes, okay? Because to be honest, it's a question that not, cannot ultimately be answered. It can't be because God doesn't answer that question. But here's a few thoughts about that. If you've ever been through a hard time, if you're in a hard time now, we yearn for an answer to that question. We're like, okay, I hear Pastor Boy telling me God's all-powerful, God's bigger than evil, God is good, God is loving. Well, then why? And, and we yearn for an answer <clears throat> to that question. But I think, and I I appreciate, I've read a book uh, this past week that a friend in here gave to me. It's an amazing book, and I appreciate the comments by its author, uh, an Anglican priest, who says, it's more, we'd want something more than just the answer to that question, though, right? We, We do want an answer, but what we really ultimately want, not just an answer, but what we want most deeply down is God to just make whatever we're facing right. When we go through hard times, we wrestle with the question of, okay, why? Why? Why, did he, why didn't he stop it? He could have. Why didn't he? But we want more than just knowing that because deep down what I think we want is him to turn back the clock or to somehow do something in that moment to make all the pain we're suffering just fixed like that. She writes these words in her book called Prayer of the Night, which is a beautifully beautifully written book by an author and theologian named Tish Warren. She says these words, When all is said and done, we don't want God simply to explain himself, to give an account of how hurricanes or head colds fit into his redemptive plan. We want action. We want to see things made right. At the heart of the problem of evil is a longing for God, who notices our suffering, who cares enough to act, and who makes all things new. It is an ache that cannot be shaken. At the heart of all that, what she's saying, and I think she's right, is what I want in those moments and what you want in those moments is God to do something. God to act. God to fix. God to make it better in an instant. We want to know that God is working to make all things new. We will never have the question, I don't think, to why God allowed that to happen in your life. It's really interesting. Um, When Jesus' friend dies, uh, people ask that very question. Jesus rolls into town, his friend is dead. And a question that the family member of Jesus' friends ask him is, Jesus, why? The question is even a little more like, hey, where were you? Because you weren't here. You weren't here, and you didn't stop it, and why? And there's tears coming down Jesus' face, and there's tears coming down their face, and there's his dead friend over there just outside the house. And you know what? Jesus dodges the question. It's one of the most perplexing things, not perplexing, 
It, it's what he chooses to do. And it isn't just in the, that story that Jesus chooses to do that, because he chooses to do that in your story. In your own story, and many times he's dodged the question. He, has, he doesn't answer it in that story. He hasn't answered it in your story. But what he says in that story, in that moment, is you know what he says? They're asking why, 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 where were you, what? I don't know. And you know what he said? Totally dodges it. And he says this, hey, you have a choice. Trust me. That's what he says, believe me. <laughs> Trust me. And I think that's the same way that God answers the questions of pain in your life and my life. Dodges it. Ignores it. But he says in those moments, but you have a choice. Believe in me. Trust me. That's the choice. We want to know that God is working. We want to know that he cares. And what this writer says is we want to know that he's making all things new. And you know what? That's what Revelation is screaming to us. Every chapter, every page, it's not providing the answer to the question of why an all-powerful God allows it to all happen. What it's providing is an assurance that the all-powerful God is committed to making all things new. And in making all things new, in order to do that, the triune God himself entered into the chaos and the brokenness and the injustice and the harm of this world. God is committed to making all things new in your life. It won't be tomorrow. But he assures you and he promises you that someday it will be new. That day may be when you see him face to face, but that day is coming. That's the hope. That's the confidence. That's the answer to the question. Believe me, when you see me, it'll be fixed then. God's not a microwave that instantly does it. It's a hard, long, drawn-out journey and process sometimes with pain and bumps and bruises and scars that seem to make no sense. But God is committed to fixing it. And in order to fix it, what he himself chose to do was to enter into the brokenness of it. I wouldn't do that. <clears throat> I wouldn't. Why would I do that? Why would I choose to make myself face horrible, horrible things if I had the power not to have that? I don't know, but that's what God did, and I'm not God. The Father allowed the Son to come into a world because that was the plan to rescue you. And when the Son did that, He Himself put Himself in a situation where the all-powerful, almighty, all-good, all-loving God didn't shield Him from things. Jesus was abandoned. Jesus trusted people who totally sold Him out. Jesus' family criticized him, made fun of him, didn't understand him. Moments in his life when they rejected him. Jesus had rumors and gossip swirling about him. Every city that he went to, there were people who misunderstood him or were talking trash about him. Jesus went through physical, physical pain and suffering Jesus allowed himself to be murdered and he faced all of those things for you and for me because that was the only way that he could rescue you and me and give us assurance that he was making all things new. In all of his power and goodness and might and love, the Father didn't shield the Son from every painful, hard thing that could have happened. He could have. But he didn't. He allowed the son to face that, and then facing that, that was the only way that the son could work to give assurance to you and me that one day all things will be made new. And when you face hard times, when you face feeling like there were people who you trusted who betrayed you, when you face times like you, a person of faith, and because the choices you're making or not making, you feel like your family doesn't understand you, your family's mocking you, your family's criticizing you. When you're a person who's doing everything right and you go into an environment and all those people are just talking trash about you and there's rumors that are swirling and it's not fair and it's not true, what you need to understand in that moment is you may not know the answer why, but Jesus knows what you're going through because he went through that too.
Jesus can relate. What the things show us about the locusts and what they can do and they can't do is that God is more powerful than evil, and we come full circle to what Jesus said on that day of the funeral. We come to a place of a challenge for you and me this morning where Jesus' response to us and the brokenness of our lives is the same thing, and here's the challenge to trust God when injustice and evil happen. It's the same answer that Jesus gives to you and me today that he gave to his friends at the deathbed of his friend when he said, I'm not going to answer it. Trust me. Trust me. What other insights about God does this text give? Well, we talked about it last week. I kind of repeat preach this part of the sermon, so that saves you all about four minutes. Maybe. Here's what we talked about last week. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. We unpacked this a little bit, but what we saw was in these events that were happening, God knew the exact hour, day, month, and year when those were going to happen. God knew every aspect of everything that was going to ha- is going to happen in the future. It's predetermined. It's known in many ways. The timing of everything is authored by God, and the events of revelation and the events Events of our lives are running according to the timetable of God. The events of revelation and the events of my life and your life are running according to the known, determined, established timetable of God, which means they're not running according to the timetable of Peter or the timetable of you. He knew He saw the future. He authored the future. He knew the hour, the day, the month, the year, the exact moment when this is going to happen. And in your life and my life, he knows the future. And he knows what he has for you and what he doesn't have for you. And he knows the exact hour and day and month and year when everything that you face will happen. He knows exactly what will happen And he knows exactly when it will happen. God has, the observation we pull from this, God has a plan. God has a plan. And he is in sovereign control of all the details. God has a plan. And he is in sovereign control of all the details. Have you ever done an escape room? I've done an escape room, I think, three times, maybe four. Once, or tw- once with our staff, our team went. Right, Emmanuel? You were there? Yeah! Right, a couple years ago, a long time ago in Bethlehem, we went to an escape room as a team. Great time. Team bonding. Then I went with my kids once or twice, and then we went with some neighbors uh, coming out of COVID. And if you've ever been to an escape room, you go into this room that's some story. It's like you're the mafia, or you're in a boat filled with poisonous pygmies or rats that are trying to eat you, and you have to escape, right? And there's clues hidden all around, and it is like chaos, right? Because you're like, I got to figure this out. I got to figure this out. I got. And so you run over here, and there's a box, and then there's numbers, and there's blocks, and then there's a flashlight over there. And so you run over, and you're like, oh, maybe if I put the flashlight in the boxes, they'll show me something in invisible ink. And you're like, well, wait, there's a mannequin over there. Let's rip its head off. Maybe there's a secret code in there. And you are just running frantically because you're trying to figure something out and you don't know how to figure it out. And you're opening drawers and you're throwing things and you're looking and you're looking at our tables for, for secret clues because you're just desperate to know how does this all work out because I want a certain outcome. And I'm just running around this room, tearing the walls apart, looking anywhere to try to get this outcome and to make it happen. But, but what happens is when you reach a point that you know what to do, you know what you do? You go to a little button on the wall Because somewhere behind the scenes, there is the escape room guru, who I'm sure is a wonderful person. The escape room guru, right, is some person chewing on their bubble gum, looking at Instagram with a little thing on their phone, who they're like looking at you in the camera, and they're like, and you're like, I don't know what to do. I can't figure out. And the escape room guru, man, they know everything. They know where everything is in that room. They know what piece leads to what piece. 
They know what you don't know. They know what you need to know. And they know how all of the pieces fit together. And so you push the button. You say, escape room guru, help me out. And this is what they say. Go to the teddy bear, cut it open with the scissors, and you'll see something inside that goes over there with a the dolphin. And you're like, whoa, thank you, escape room guru. <clears throat> but when you're stuck, you call somebody who knows what the plan is. When you're stuck... You depend on somebody who knows where all the pieces are in that situation and how they all fit together. Are you trying to find direction in your life this morning? Are you trying to figure out, hey, I've reached a milestone in my life, and what do I do now? What does retirement look like for me now? What does graduating from high school and going to work at a construction company or as a cop or going to Housatonic or going to Yale, what does that look like for me now? I got a place where you're not in an escape room, but you're in the story of your life and your five-year plan, nope, big old curveball. Are you tired of waiting for something to stop or desperate for something to start? And none of it's happening according to the time frame that you want. And you don't know what to do. You don't know how the pieces fit together. You don't know where the next piece is coming. You don't know where to look. You don't know the next step to take. And in that moment when you were running around trying to figure it out, what to do, how to do it, how is it all going to fit together, how does this thing in my life impact that thing in my life, and what if this, and what if that, and then that, and maybe what might, what could, what would. Man, you have something more powerful than an escape room guru at the other side of a little red box, red button on the wall. You have the God of the universe who is in sovereign control of all the details of your life. And in that moment, here's the challenge. Trust God when the path is not clear and when you don't see or understand the plan. Every single one of us at some moment in our lives is going to face this. Every single one of us is going to have some moment in our life when the path isn't clear and we don't see or we don't understand the plan. And in that moment you're going to have to choose to trust something. Because the one thing that's true for every single one of us in this room is we all trust something. And we all have days, and in different ways, we have to decide what are we going to trust and what is trustworthy. And in those moments of your life, the question is not whether I'll trust something. The question is when you don't know and you don't understand the plan and none of it makes sense and you didn't write this story and there's fear and there's anxiety and there's doubt and there's bitterness and there's anger, what are you going to trust? And the challenge from the God who knew the minute and the hour and the day in the month when every future event will happen is the same God who's saying, trust me. Trust me. When things don't go the way we want, this is where we should fall. But we have a choice. And when it all crumbles around us, or it not necessarily even crumbles, right? Because sometimes the things that cause the most anxiety aren't the biggest crisis of their life. It's just little thing after little thing after little thing after little thing that just builds up and becomes too much to carry. And in that moment, this is where we should go. But we do have a choice because God is not going to grab us by the collar and yank us to him. God's going to say, you have a choice. You have a choice. And in that moment, you're going to hear some whispers. And in that moment, you're going to hear some lies. And you're going to hear some whispers and lies that there's something else that will work it out better than this. You're going to hear some whispers and some lies that, hey, why would you do that? Isn't he the one who got you in this situation? Why are you going to trust him? Because this thing over here, it's going to get you what you want. And you know what's so challenging? To some degree, for some period of time, 
whether that is minutes, days, months, or a year, this thing can get you what you want. That's what's so problematic about this. We, we, we face this moment when things don't work, and the truth is, hey, trust God, trust God, trust God. The lies are not trustworthy. He got you here. He's not going to make you happy. He's not going to give you an escape. He's not going to satisfy you. He's not going to please you. He's not going to delight you. But this thing right here will. And what is so challenging about that lie is in many ways this thing actually does for a moment give you what you yearn for. And many times what we yearn for when everything is falling apart is escape. And there are a lot of things other than God that can give you an escape for an hour or a weekend or a month or a year but not forever. That's what makes this so challenging. In the story of these people, their lives were falling apart around them. They, they had these, the people who didn't know Jesus, they had these locusts messing with their lives. Then they had this death all around them. And, and what we see happen in this is the Revelation 2021. We've talked about it a few times, but it, the rest of mankind, right? Part of this is to get people, when things are falling apart, to turn to God. Verse 20 tells us this. The rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works of their hands, nor, see, and then here's what they turn to. They're like, we're not going to turn to that God, we're, right? Maybe there is a God who's making all those things happen, but nope. We ain't going there. What it did was cause them to dig more deeply into the very things that had gotten them into their mess to begin with. They didn't repent of their works of their hand, which means all their bad choices. But, but here's what was behind that. Nor did they give up worshiping demons and idols of gold. There was some idol that some demonic force had said, this will satisfy you and not God, even though it's all crumbling around you. Don't trust him. Trust this because they believed a lie which kept them perpetuating all the really, really bad choices they were doing. There was something in that moment when everything for them was crumbling around them that they dug into, an idol, a little stupid figurine, right? Like at the bottom of a Cracker Jack box that they thought was going to make it better for them than God when everything was falling around because they had believed a lie from the enemy that this will make it right. And so they just kept doing the very same acts and the very same choices that had gotten to the place where they were facing consequences that God was using to try to say, come back to me. I have an idol I say that on the mic with 130 people watching the live stream or whatever they're watching, and I say that because don't you get judgmental, because y'all have an idol. In case you don't understand Southern, let me break it down. Bronx style, use guys. <laughs> every single one of us has an idol. And every single one of us, when life doesn't go to according to script, are going to be faced with a choice, will I trust God and trusting God means satisfaction is going to be delayed. That's what's so challenging about it. That's what it means. It may not instantly get better, and we want it better now. It may not get better till we see him, or this thing promises to make it better now, and we can choose what are we going to run to. Here's what Tim Keller, a pastor in Manhattan, defines as an idol. An idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your Heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give only what God can give to you. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up here as we wind our time down together. I have this. You have this. And when life crumbles around us, when the plan doesn't make sense, when the circumstances are hard, and when there is no answer to why, the choice is what are we going to trust? And what we see for a bunch of people in the future in Revelation chapter 9 is in those moments they choose to dig deeper into the very thing that isn't trustworthy, that ironically got them to the very situation they can be. Here's the sixth observation and the sixth challenge. God is ultimately more satisfying 
and delight, and the, the, God is ultimately the most satisfying and delight-giving thing that we can pursue, even if that satisfaction might be delayed until eternity. And for some of us, I'm shooting you straight. I could lie to you. Do you want me to lie to you? I mean, I could. Here's the lie. Man, trust God, tomorrow's going to be the best day ever. See, pastors tell that lie. And then when tomorrow is the worst day ever, people think that God has failed them, and really it was just that pastor who failed them. I'm not going to fail you, I hope. Trusting God does not mean that tomorrow is going to be the best day ever. And for some of us, it may mean that satisfaction will never come until eternity. But will we still trust God? Because that satisfaction will come. God is ultimately the most satisfying, delight-giving thing we can pursue, even if that satisfaction might be delayed until eternity. And so here's the challenge. Trust God when something else claims to make life easier or better or to be more satisfying. Next week, it's going to be another kind of interlude in God and Revelation because John, the guy who's writing this book, is getting a little worn out. And God's going to try to encourage him some things, right? That's God. John's going to have some challenges next week that we're going to look at. But this week, here's what we've seen as far as challenges. Trust God when an evil and injustice happen. Trust God when the path is not clear and when you do not see or understand the plan. And trust God when something else claims to make life easier or better or be more satisfying. And the more we affirm for ourselves the goodness of God in the midst of the badness of life, the easier it will be to do these things. The more we affirm for ourselves the goodness of God when facing the badness of life or before the badness of life, the easier it will be to do these things. So I'm going to invite you to stand up, and we're going to sing a song now that if you're a follower of Jesus, this is an affirmation for us about the goodness of God and his trustworthiness. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is a statement of what is ultimately good and what is altogether good and what can be trusted. And I would encourage you, if you're going through a hard moment today, then I would say, man, sing this song as you reminding yourself what you believe to be true, even if you don't feel it. Some of you, I would say, sing this song and remind yourself of what you know to be true, even if you don't feel it. And for others of you who this is the best day of your life, man, you sing this song and you drill this truth into your heart because one day there's a bad day coming. One day there's a bad day coming and you need to have these truths anchored in your heart. Don't question in the dark what you've believed in the light. Don't question in the dark what you've believed in the light. And for some of you, this is a moment of light to affirm truth for when those dark moments come. Let's sing this song together as an affirmation.